Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I uh, really enjoyed our Sunday school lesson. It uh, feels like it's uh, closely related to the passage we'll be looking at this morning from Mark chapter 9. Um, haven't made all the connections yet between how the two could be um, tied together, but I'm sure you will think of some of them as we go through this. When Jesus was leaving uh, or giving his farewell messages to the disciples before he left earth or went through the crucifixion and then left, he told them that without me you can do nothing. And in today's passage that we're looking at, we, we see an account where the disciples were able to do exactly that much, which was nothing. They were powerless. And so as we look at this account, looking at uh, the story about the father with the demon-possessed boy, uh, I want us all to be reminded of, of the simple truth that in whatever struggle we are facing, the key to victory is faith, and we need to exercise that faith through prayer. A little background to this account here in Mark chapter 9. They had traveled up from... Bethsaida up to Caesarea Philippi area, and on the way Jesus had, had told them for the first time plainly that he's going to be killed. And the disciples, of course, were uh, struggling with, with that news, and then Jesus tells them they need to follow him. Well, about six days later, or eight days later, if you count like Luke does, um, we have this, the, the, the transfiguration, and we don't know Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into the mountain, but we don't know for sure which mountain this was, this, this mountain of transfiguration. It might have been Mount Tabor, which is in Galilee. It might have been Mount Hermon, if Jesus and the disciples were still up in the area of Caesarea Philippi, one of the slopes of Mount Hermon. And so they spend the night up on the mountain. That's, that's what we get from, from Luke. And the next day they come down, and there's a large crowd waiting for them. There is the scribes who are causing a quarrel, an argument. There's the distraught father. There's this demon-possessed boy. And there are nine sheepish disciples. This incident must have really stuck with the, with the apostles because it's retold in Matthew 17, in Mark 9, and in Luke 9. Let's read this account from Mark, starting at verse 14, Mark 9, verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spear which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? 
and he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying and throwing him to a terrible convulsion, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. There are five main points that I want to emphasize in this passage. The first one is that Satan's forces are at war with us. If we look at this situation the poor boy is in here, this is a father's only son. Uh, he's been possessed by demons since childhood, so this has been going on for probably years. It's an especially obstinate demon. I guess it shouldn't surprise us too much that not all demons behave the same. Some are apparently expelled more easily than others. And over in Matthew 12, where Jesus told the story about the unclean spirit that returns to the empty house, he goes, the unclean spirit goes and gets, I can't remember how many more demons, stronger than himself. So some demons are apparently stronger than others. I'm sorry, more wicked. It doesn't say stronger. So it's kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around, but apparently some demons are more wicked than others. And, and this demon possession, it, it has horrible effects. Uh, causes these fits, throws the boy into fits of screaming and convulsions. And you're probably all thinking, well, that isn't that abnormal yet. But he also foams at the mouth and makes him mute. And worse yet, uh, this demon wants to kill the boy. He either throws him into the fire or tries to drown him. Terrible situation. One other detail I'm not sure how to interpret is over in Luke chapter 9 where it says that the, the demon would hardly leave him. And that could mean that he, he would rarely leave the boy alone, was constantly tormenting him. Or it could mean that when the demon kind of gave the boy a break, he, he really left with some kind of terrible convulsion or whatever. There's a few things we need to remember about our enemy, Satan, and his forces. He's not changed since Jesus' days. Even though we don't see a lot of demonic activity around us today, it uh, doesn't mean he's mellowed over time. Just look at ISIS. That's kind of a grim reminder of how evil he is. Satan's forces will target anyone. And his aims are to ruin us for, for God. He wants to, to crush us. He wants to disable us. He wants to cause strife and division. And he wants to turn us into a monster, a spiritual monster. He doesn't let go easily. But there's some good news. The good news is that he, he has limits. Our enemy has limits. This boy is still alive. He's, the demon has not been able to kill this boy. The father's only hope here is, is divine intervention, and, and that is our only hope too, really, when faced with, with Satan and, and other obstacles in our lives. We need God's power 
it'd be very naive for us to think today that, that um, some of the, the biggest struggles that we're involved in, that Satan is not involved in those too. Of course, you remember the verse from 1 Peter that says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So, first point is that Satan is at war with us. The second point is that unbelief cripples us. Let's look at what happens when we engage the enemy without enough faith. Now, the disciples had a special authority to cast out demons. In Mark chapter 3, when the twelve are appointed, Jesus, it says that Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons. It says it again over in, in Mark 6, when the twelve are sent out, he gave them authority. It says in verse 13 of Mark 6, they cast out many demons. So they did have a special, maybe a unique authority for them to cast out demons. And maybe if this had been a lesser demon, maybe the disciples could have cast it out even though they had some faith problems, which we'll look at shortly. The disciples try to cast it out on their own, but they fail miserably. And I have to wonder, did, did each of the nine uh, take a turn? Did they each try? You know, it didn't work for me. Okay, you try. Uh, when Peter, James, and John showed up, did they, did they think, if only I'd been there, been able to take care of this problem? I don't know. But the root cause of their failure is spelled out over in Matthew chapter 17. Let's, let's flip over to that account of this story. At the end of Matthew chapter 17, starting verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? Now Jesus gives a bit more detail. And he says, and he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. Now some translations will say because of your unbelief. It, it depends which like Greek text it's translated from. Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The disciples often struggled with faith, as we do. Uh, before calming the storm, Jesus said, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Uh, when Peter tried to walk on the water and he started to sink, he said, you of little faith, why did, you, why did you doubt? When the disciples brought that one loaf of bread onto the boat and they were all worried about not having enough bread for lunch, he said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? So it was an ongoing struggle for them. And I wonder why their faith was so weak at this point. I have a few ideas. I don't, I don't know if they have any uh, substance or not. But one idea is that Jesus just six days ago had told them very plainly he's going to be killed. And maybe that shook them. Maybe that shook their confidence. Another idea is that Maybe it was something about the transfiguration itself and, them take, and Jesus taking up Peter, James, and John, those three up into the mountain and leaving the rest behind. Did that cause some kind of resentment or pride or strife? Is that possible? Or maybe, maybe the disciples were just 
not doing very well at praying. Maybe their prayer life was suffering. But that might be one way to interpret, that is one way to interpret what Jesus says at the end of Mark 9, uh, at our passage in Mark 9, where he says, this kind comes out only by prayer. We'll talk about that more. But the outcome, either way, they didn't have enough faith. And the outcome is instead of this scene of, of praise and rejoicing and God's name being lifted up, we have um, no progress. No progress on this mountain. This obstacle, it's still stuck. We're not getting anywhere. Have you ever had a problem like this, an, an obstacle in your life where you just, you're, you're stuck. You're not making any progress. It it's, can be super frustrating. And um, I have a little illustration because this happened to me recently. Do you know what locking lug nuts are on a car? If you, I don't know if you've, you've had any vehicles with locking lug nuts. I don't know why they are. I mean, I guess if you're really worried about your car tires, your wheels being stolen. But I have a 1993 Camry. I'm not too worried about that. And um, so the way they work is this. Here's a locking lug nut. It's a lug nut that has, is smooth all the way around the edges. And the way you get them, it has a little special design in the surface. And the way you get it off is you use this special bolt, uh, the socket that fits onto that little design in the surface and can take the lug nut off. Because this then has nice square edges that you can put a, a wrench on. So this socket you keep in your trunk. And uh, this is going to keep thieves from stealing your car. Well, my, this thing broke, okay? My, my little unlocking socket broke. So I had to get, the, and I needed to get the tires changed on the Camry, so I had to get these things off somehow. They were still on, the, on two of my wheels. So what I did was I Googled it. It's a good, good choice. And uh, quickly found out how to do this. And I'm sure thieves could, you know, probably can use Google too, so I don't, I don't know what the point is. But um, what you do is you, you get a socket, uh, a 12, 12 point, I don't know what you call it, this is a 6, but you get one that has actually 12 edges that's slightly larger than the circumference of your locking lug nut, and you pound it on with a hammer, okay? This story eventually has a point. You pound it on with a hammer. Okay, I pounded it on with a hammer. It worked great. I know it, it, it got lodged on there very firmly. I got my other socket, twisted the thing off, worked beautifully. And then I remembered I've got to get the one off on the other wheel. You know, I only have one of these sockets. I only bought one for some reason. And so this thing is, is like this, except it's, it's, in, you know, it's around this locking lug nut. And I need to get the lug nut out of the socket. So I thought, okay, I just my vice grip just jerk on a little bit. Didn't happen. Would not come out. So I beat on it with a hammer. You know, you, you put it, I put it down on the concrete and beat on one side and then the other side. No progress. Did not budge. So I thought, we're going to fix this. I, um, I, I put a vice grips on the socket. I got a, a nail or I don't remember what it was, something blunt, and stuck it through this little hole in the top of the socket and held my vice grips like this, put on a bench, slammed on the thing with the hammer. I thought, this is going to come out. You know, I kept hitting it harder and harder. Would not come out. In fact, my vice grips would always give up first. It, it let go, and the, and the thing would fall out. And I got seriously 
frustrated. I mean, I wanted to get this job done, and this is an obstacle, and it's stuck. It's not moving. Source of great frustration to me. And there's just some kind of natural outcome that always happens when we're faced with an obstacle that does not move. It's, it's discouraging. It's frustrating. It causes anger. I told Colleen I'd give her $100 if she could get it off. And that didn't work. <clears throat> so the father, you know, first when he comes to the disciples, he says, please cast out this demon for, I, you know, cast out the demon. When he comes to Jesus, by that time, it's kind of like his request is eroded a little bit. He says, if you can do anything, and maybe not even cast the demon out, just make it not so bad. I don't know. But the end result is there's discouragement. Um, in this story, Christ's name is kind of put down. Um, the crowd has been watching. When they, when they see the disciples' failure, you know, maybe they start to wonder, well, maybe their master isn't so great after all. The only ones who are rejoicing in this story is probably the scribes, who are, are very cheerful about this ammunition they've gotten to accuse Jesus of being a fraud. A situation in, in a lot of ways is worse than it was before. Sometimes, maybe not always, but sometimes when we go into a situation and involve ourselves in a situation and we lack faith, sometimes the end result is worse than if we had just steered clear. The seven sons of Sceva, I think, would agree with that idea. Unbelief is crippling. It causes discouragement, strife, makes Jesus look bad. It frustrates Jesus. Look at how he responded in verse 19. It, it, unbelief can make bad situations worse. It's, unbelief is not a neutral force. It's empowering to Satan. Second point. Third point is that faith makes God's power available. And that is really the main point of this, this account. Faith makes all things possible. And let's look at how Jesus first, how he responds to this father's plea for help. The father's struggling, of course. This is nightmare has been going on for years. No one's been able to help him. Maybe he's had the religious leaders. Maybe he's gone to them and, and maybe they've tried before, but no success. And so when he heard about Jesus, you know, it probably sounded too good to be true, but he came anyway, and now the disciples can't help him. So we shouldn't be surprised that he says, if you can do anything, take pity. And Jesus picks up on that. He says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Almost as though he's putting the responsibility of the miracle kind of back on the, on the Father. In fact, I've, I've read, uh, it's suggested that one way that this should, should maybe have been translated would be instead of saying, if you can, that Jesus was really saying, if you can believe. I don't know. But Jesus is looking for faith before he does anything. This has been a constant for, this is his approach throughout his ministry. The paralyzed man lowered through the roof. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, your son. Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. The woman who touched his garment, your faith has made you well. The two blind men who cried out for mercy, it shall be done to you according to your faith. Blind Bartimaeus, 
your faith has made you well. The sinful woman who washed his feet, your faith has saved you. To Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And in his hometown, he did not do many miracles because of their unbelief. Faith unlocks God's power. And we need to go back to Matthew 17 again and, and look again at, at what Jesus says here about faith and the mountain and the mustard seed. If you'll flip back to Matthew 17 again. <clears throat> this illustration of the mustard seed in the mountain, um, we could spend a lot of time studying this, and I'll, I'll just make a few observations. First, starting with a mountain is big, really big. When Jesus said this, he probably pointed at the mountain that he had just come down from. If he had come down from Mount Tabor, that was a 2,000-foot-high mountain. If he had come down from Mount Hermon, or one of the slopes of Mount Hermon, and if he was pointing at the peak of Mount Hermon, that was 9,000 feet high. I kind of hope it was Mount Hermon that he was pointing at. It's a huge obstacle. A mustard seed is small, something very small. And in fact, it, it was apparently a, a common expression to say in those days that something very small was the size of a mustard seed. And maybe in today's terminology, Jesus would have said, if you had faith that was knee-high to grasshopper, but the disciples did not even have grasshopper knee-level faith. You know, if you think about it, Jesus would have been hard-pressed for him to come up with two objects of such great um, difference in size. And I think what this tells us about faith is that it doesn't take a whole lot of faith for God to move powerfully on our behalf. Now, I don't want to say that the amount of faith doesn't matter because Jesus does praise people who have great faith and he is hard on people who don't have much faith. I think the question is whether when, when we are faced with a mountain, something that, an obstacle that is stuck, do we have any faith at all? And, and some scholars will say that the, the mustard seed represents a, a kind of faith that is, it's alive, it's, it's going to grow, it's going to tur turn into that, that large bush in the garden, larger than all the other plants. And I think there's probably some truth to that interpretation. Our faith should be something that is alive and growing. But essentially here, when Jesus talks about the mustard seed and faith, he's, he tells his disciples, your faith doesn't even measure up to a mustard seed. If, if all you had was a mustard seed of faith, you could, have overcome, you could overcome an obstacle the size of a mountain. God is, is so powerful and so generous with that power. Um, all we need to bring to the table is a mustard seed of faith. And he provides mountain leveling power. Now, uh, I feel like I need to say, just, just make a comment to kind of add some balance to this picture here because I don't want to give you the impression that if we only had enough faith, God would blow away all the obstacles we have in our lives and he would level all these mountains and everything would go smoothly. I don't think that is really what, what Jesus is saying when he's talking about the mountain being moved. When he says, when he's talking about the mountain being moved, I think he's emphasizing God's power to um, 
help us overcome obstacles. And sometimes that overcoming does take the form of the, mount, the obstacle is removed. And sometimes it's God providing us with tremendous grace to overcome, maybe climb the mountain, whatever. All things are possible through faith because faith makes God's power available. Okay, point number four, faith needs to be exercised through prayer. And prayer and faith are so tightly intertwined, I, I really think they feed each other. Um, need to start, it, the whole thing obviously starts with faith. But just to give you an idea of, of how intertwined these are, over in Matthew 21, when Jesus did the miracle and, and cursed the fig tree, and the disciples were amazed about that. Jesus told them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. The other um, account my mind turns to is the, is the one where Jesus told the story about the widow and the unjust judge. This is in uh, Luke 18. And, and that, not to study that whole parable, but that, that one starts with the main point is at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Jesus says that's the main point. And then he ends that story with the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Prayer and faith. And prayer can strengthen faith. When Jesus was worried about Peter and 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 how Satan wanted to, to um, well, let me just read this. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, back in Mark 9, there are two significant references to prayer, or maybe two kinds of prayer that are talked about in this passage. The first one comes at the end in Mark 9, verse 29. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, remember, Jesus over in Matthew 17 said the reason they couldn't cast it out was because of their unbelief. So is it unbelief or is it prayer that was the problem? Well, there's a couple ways we can interpret what Jesus is saying here. One way to, to look at it would be to say, if your faith had been what it should have been, you wouldn't have just quit when the demon didn't come out. You would have got on your knees and prayed. The other way to look at it would be to say, if your prayer life had been what it should have been, and if your heart had been prepared through prayer, you would have had the faith necessary to cast this demon out. And, and um, we'll talk about fasting in a, in a minute. If fasting was in the original text, and we'll mention that, then that would kind of support this, this translation of, of this interpretation of your heart being prepared through prayer and that providing them with the faith necessary. In either case, uh, persistence in prayer is necessary for getting rid of stubborn obstacles. Now, the Father, when he cries out to Jesus, there's, there's several things we need to pick up on and learn from him. And the disciples could have learned a few, a few things from him too, and we can also. I think there's three qualities we, we ought to mimic. The first one is that the Father is persistent he hasn't given up yet. Even after all these years, he hasn't given up yet. He still sought out Jesus. And he didn't just immediately leave the scene as soon as the disciples failed. 
So persistence is, is important. We kind of touched on that already. The other thing is he is humble. When he came up to Jesus, I think it was in the Matthew account, it says that he fell on his knees before Jesus. I can't think of a scenario where God would not listen to a humble prayer. And then the, the third point, and I think maybe this is, this is so important, is that he is honest. And in this desperate situation where Jesus calls him out for saying, um, if you can, it must have been so tempting for him to say, oh, that was just a slip of my tongue. Uh, you, you can. You, you've got this. You, you've got this covered. No problem. You can do it. But instead, the father does not try to, to cover up. He just says, help my unbelief. There's, there's no effort to deceive Jesus. This, this man's humility, his, his persistence, his um, honesty, those, those three things combined tell me that this man still had some faith. And... Uh, Maybe mustard seed size, but he had faith. And it moved Jesus, even though his, his faith was imperfect. God doesn't always require perfect faith in order to act. Jesus, Jesus uh, defeats the demon perfectly, easily. Um, you get out, do not return. It's not an option for the demon anymore. He revives the boy in, in spite of the demon's best efforts to kill him. There at the end, he revives the boy and years of bondage are suddenly broken, just like that. And Jesus really answered two prayers here. He, he answered the, the father's prayer to, to have pity. He had pity. And he also helped the father's unbelief. The funny thing is that now the father's faith is probably stronger than a lot of people in Israel who never had to deal with something so horrible as a demon-possessed boy. Faith needs to be applied through prayer. If we go back to this little story about the lug nut, um, I was, so this thing was stuck on there, and I could not get it off. And I was studying this situation, and I I think I did pray about it, but that actually does not really fit into my illustration because the illustration is about prayer. And I was thinking, and I I think I thought, what would Harold do? And uh, and it occurred to me that that there's something I hadn't tried yet. So I took this thing down to the basement, and I went up, uh, and I went and got a lighter. And I lit and this little lighter, not a torch, you know, it's just a little flame, mustard seed-sized. And I held this lighter up to the socket for about 15 seconds. Not, not that long, but it, it got pretty hot. I was, I was holding it with the vice grips, not my hands. And I turned this thing over, I gave it a couple more whacks, and it fell out. And problem solved. Not that big of a deal. So in this illustration, what I would like to say is the flame maybe represents the faith, and maybe prayer is me holding the flame to the socket. Faith unlocks God's power when we pray, and it removes obstacles. Things move. And that, and that prayer needs to be persistent, it needs to be humble, it needs to be honest, but it will have effect. We need to apply faith with prayer. We need to exercise our faith 
with prayer. The last point I want to make is, is about fasting, that fasting can strengthen our prayers. Was, is Matthew 17, 21, is it in the original or is it not? The Mark, the Mark verse uh, over in Mark 9, 29 only mentions prayer, does not mention fasting. Matthew 17, 21, there's some question as to whether that verse should be there or not because the oldest Greek texts do not have it. However, the majority of the Greek texts that are used for translation do have it. And I don't know a whole lot about this whole issue, but to, I think, oversimplify it would be to say, here's my understanding, and it's probably an oversimplification. If the majority of the Greek texts were copied from the oldest Greek texts that we have, and this verse was not in the oldest, then it probably was added and should not be there. However, if the majority of the Greek texts that we have are actually copied from still older Greek texts that we don't have, then probably the verse should be there. And I don't know if anyone knows for sure which way, what is the answer to that. So I for sure don't know. It is interesting to notice that at one place Jesus said that um, now, was not really in a, now was not a time for his disciples to fast. But he does encourage fasting. He fasted himself when he was in the wilderness. He taught his disciples that when they fast, they ought to do it in a way that is not a public display. He said that when he does leave the earth, his disciples should fast or would fast. And, and the New Testament church, before they sent out uh, Paul, before they chose Paul and Barnabas, they were praying and fasting. And after they chose them, they prayed and fasted again before they sent them out. And then when Paul and Barnabas started those first little churches in Asia Minor, they prayed and fasted before they appointed elders in those churches. So praying and fasting is, is a, it's a uh, consistent theme in the Bible, and it does seem to make a difference. My limited experience with fasting, is, and I don't understand exactly the effect that it has, but my limited experience with fasting is that it makes a difference. It does make a difference. So fasting can strengthen our prayers. We started off this, this passage by reviewing the fact that Satan's forces are at war with us and they are vicious. But resistance is not futile for Christians. And that verse I read from 1 Peter that talks about Satan going around like a, like a lion seeking whom he may devour. The next verse says, but resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So without faith, we're crippled. But with faith, all things are possible. Satan can be defeated. Our flesh can be defeated. And we need to apply that faith and exercise that faith through prayer and consider adding fasting to that prayer. How does this passage, when you look at this passage, how does this turn into something that we can apply in a situation we're facing today, tomorrow, and next week. Well, I think uh, the one conclusion we have to arrive at is that when we are facing something tough, an obstacle of, of whatever nature, whether it's something internal or kind of an external struggle, that instead of just giving us a spiritual shrug and giving in to defeat, we really need to get on our knees and stay on our knees. 
put it in, in very practical terms, maybe, next week we have revival meetings. And it's very possible that some of us are going to kind of reenact what the disciples did. I hope not. But come out of the other side of revival meetings with the same obstacles, kind of unmoved, defeated. Because we, we didn't pray enough in faith. We didn't exercise our faith. We weren't prepared. If we don't feel like praying, we really need to, to, to pray, Lord, help my unbelief. God is totally capable of, of moving mountains. It's not a problem. All things are possible to him who believes. Um, the question is, is not whether he can do something on our behalf, but are we facing this, this problem with prayer and with faith? God bless you.